0: One of the blessings of being able to live here in, in Florida. I know that a lot of us, a lot of you, uh, went to the beach this uh, week, whether for Memorial Day or for other times. Um, and as you're walking on the beach, let me, let me just kind of present to you a scenario that could have actually happened, maybe. Uh, you decide that you're going to wait at the beach until the sun sets. The sun goes down. It's dark. It's dark. And you and your husband, you and your wife go on a romantic stroll. You and your best friend are walking on the beach. And as you're walking, talking about the good things that God is doing in your life, uh, you stub your toe on some hard object in the sand. Thinking in your frustration that you want to take this object and throw it back into the ocean, you reach down only to realize, aha, it is a magic lamp. A magic lamp. And you're like, this only happens in the movies or in Aladdin. That your friend says, rub it, rub it. Let's see what happens. And as you rub it, out comes a genie. Oh, my goodness. And you're, you're like being blown away. This is in your wildest imaginations. This never would have happened. But you rub this and a genie comes out and the genie says, I'll give you one wish. Whatever you wish for, I'll give to you. And you say to them, but in the movies, it's three wishes. And the genie says, but this is not a movie. This is real life. So I give you one wish. What would you wish for? What would you wish for? One thing. Your golden ticket. What would you wish for? So I asked that to a few harvesters, and this is what, um, this is what some of them told me. So their answers kind of ran the whole spectrum of, of answers. Some of, them were, some of them were spiritual. This is what some of you guys said. One wish. I would wish for a deeper relationship with God. That's great. I, that's awesome. Uh, that I would die to sin and live for Christ. Awesome. Someone, this is, this is profound. They said, actually, I don't know if it's, they might have got this off Twitter or something. But wisdom to know what's right <coughs> and courage to do what's right. Pretty good, right? So one of you guys said right? peace, uh, inner peace. A couple people said peace. Uh, someone said world peace. Discipline, wisdom, knowledge—pretty good, good things. If you could get these, some of them were family-related. One one person said, "I would I would wish for my family salvation." Um, another person said, "A dad." Another person said, "My dad." Uh, someone said, "A husband for my mom." Someone said, "Healthy baby and mommy, A safe and happy family." Right? Others said something that would help. Get rid of the confusion in their lives. Someone said, I'd want to know what I'd want to ask for. I said, I I don't know, that's so deep. What does that even mean? And they wrote back and they said, I've been thinking about it all day. I I asked it one day and then I got a response the next day. So I've been thinking about it all day and I still don't know. So I would want to know what I'd want to ask for. Another person said, what career I ought to choose. And then others were just uh, plain honest. This is what... Someone said, a wife that, what's that funny? I said a wife. A wife that golfs. <laughs> okay, so in your mind, you guys are ticking through all the single men who golf and you're trying to figure out. Uh, a boyfriend and friends who I can trust and would do anything with me oh, and, and would do anything with and for me. And a boyfriend and friends I can trust and would do anything with and for me. And then someone else wrote, muscles. It, that's not it. <laughs> it's too funny. I don't know if I can go on. Muscles, it says gigantic, glistening oh. <laughs> muscles. Before adding godly love in addition to that. What would you wish for? You could have one wish come true before your eyes. That was a question that was confronting the third king of Israel, Solomon. Solomon. We've been looking at the lives of these kings. We're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 3 if you want to turn there. Uh, but the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, he started out pretty well, wanted to honor the Lord God, but his life quickly tailspinned, and it fell out of, uh, out of pleasure with God. Second king of Israel, a guy named David, he started out really well. And then we saw last week and the week before, his, uh, just a cycle of sin and adultery and cover-up and murder. Um, he started out well, he hit a blip in the middle, and then he ended well because he repented and came back to the Lord God. Both of these kings reign for about 40 years. We get to the third king of Israel, a guy named Solomon, and the kingdom that he inherits is a kingdom that David has set up beautifully for him. His father has set up beautifully for him. David has conquered all of the enemies around him, so there's peace. He's living in the midst of the land that was promised to them, everything is going well. Uh, there was a, a point in time where one of his half-brothers rose up and, and, and said, uh, in attempt to throw a coup d'etat, he wanted to be the king after David, but David's mighty men got in the way, and they said, no, Solomon is going to be the God-ordained king. So Solomon has risen to power. Everything is going well. In fact, peace all around his name, Solomon, comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Right? Solomon is a prince of peace, and as he rules to reign, he is a king of endowed with peace all around everything is beautiful as solomon's reign begins and god comes to him not a genie but god comes to him and says if there's one thing there's one thing that you could have what would you want okay first kings chapter 3 we are going to read verses one through 15 and then uh, we're just going to just look at the beginning the middle and the end of solomon's life to see how he did okay first kings chapter three what would solomon ask for So Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David till he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord on the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father, David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and upright and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. To give your servant a discerning heart, to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you've not since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, or nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there'll be, there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I'll give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. This is God's word. So the beginning, the middle, the end of Solomon's life, what do we see here? The first thing at the beginning of his life, in pursuing wisdom above all else, he was seeking God above all else, right? And seeking wisdom above all else, he was putting God above all else. What does that mean? But God comes to him with a question. We know that throughout the Bible, we've seen as we've been going through 30 weeks of this series from the beginning, Genesis, until this point in time. We've seen that God often asks questions of people. He says to Adam in his hiding, he says, Adam, where are you? Hey, Where are you, Adam? He says to, um, uh, he says to. Elijah, after Elijah has fought the prophets of Baal, and then he's running off, uh, and he's like, I'm so depressed, I want to die. He's hiding under this tree, thinking that God doesn't see him. And God says to Elijah, he says, Elijah, why are you here? Later, Jesus, when he's going out doing his ministry, a bleeding woman comes, and she touches him. Immediately, she's healed. Power goes out of Jesus, and Jesus says, Who touched me? The question is, why does God ask these questions? And it's not because he doesn't know who touched him. It's not because he doesn't know, hmm, Adam, he's doing a really great job of hide and seek. I can't find him. So, Adam, where are you? It's not because he can't find him. It's not because he doesn't know the answer. The reason he asks these questions is because that question is the very question that reveals the heart of the person who's being interrogated in that moment. And so God says to Solomon, what do you want? One thing, what do you want? Because if there's any question that gets to the heart of our desires, that shows us, that, that rips apart the inside of who we are and shows us what's in a man, what's in a woman, it's that question, what do you want? So how would you answer that question? Usually in these genie movies when these things pop up and someone says, oh, I want a wife that plays golf. The genie will give that man a wife who plays golf but he'll do something weird with her. He'll make her like nine feet tall. She'll be like 300 pounds of solid muscle. And she'll be smelly all the time because she's playing golf. And like, that that's what you wanted. You wanted a wife that plays golf. Here you are. And all of a sudden, the person who gets that wife says, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have wished for that after all. Or you ask for glistening, shiny muscles. And maybe it's because you can't stop sweating. You just profusely sweat coming out all the time, even in your midst of Antarctica. And you're like sweating and you're sweating and people are like, dude, that guy's got glistening muscles all the time. And they're huge. They're massive. There's always, I know you guys are like, dude, I'm never answering a question that you ask again. I didn't know you're going to do that, but that's, that's the reality, right? The question that confronts the people of God that confronts Solomon is what is it that you want? Because that is a revelation of the heart of a person. And the message that God is saying is you got to be careful what you ask for because your heart's desires can often lead you the wrong way. I had a friend, she was a Bible study leader named Simon. He was what um, people, Korean people call a fob, means fresh off the boat, means that he just recently came from Korea. His English wasn't very good. Uh, His English wasn't very good, but he loved God with everything that was within him. And him and a group of guys, this is what, you know, a lot of us, when we get together these days, we want to go play uh, foosball, or we want to go you know, kick a soccer ball around, or we, I don't know what we want to do, go to the beach. But these guys, when they when they're bored, they would just get together. They would pray. They would just pray, pray, pray. They are having one of these impromptu, crazy, fiery prayer meetings, and they're praying, and they're yelling, and they're screaming, and they're crying, and they're just, at, just meeting with God in, in, in this place. This was years back. And Simon, being the, the fob that he is, said, I'm going to pray, guys. I feel like God's putting something in my heart to pray. They're like, all right, pray. And he said, God, make us bald. And one of his friends looked at him and said, "No, not bald." And he kept on going with even more passion. He's like, "Make us bald for you. Give us baldness. all give all of us baldness. Make us all bald for you. Make us so bald that everyone will know that you alone have answered this prayer." And they're like, "No, don't pray for baldness." Indeed, they became bold. But the funny thing is, within five years, they all started losing their hair. It's crazy. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you ask for. And so God says, with us, it's theoretical. Hey, what do you want? With us, it's theoretical. It reveals our heart. But with Solomon, this was a real deal. What do you want, Solomon? What do you want? And he realized that he's got one shot. Right, this, is his, this is his one bullet. And he's got one shot. What do you want? And so he starts thinking about uh, David's reign, and he starts in, in verse 6. You've shown great kindness to your servant, to David, and all of these things. You've set all these things up. But he realizes, man, I've got some massive shoes to fill if I'm going to lead the people of God. I don't know if I can do this. And he says, God, if there's one thing that you could give to me, can you make me, make me a man of wisdom and discernment? That's all I want. So Solomon wasn't asking for wisdom in order that, he could be praised by all these people. He wasn't asking for wisdom in order that he could, like, manipulate and trick people. He wasn't asking for wisdom so that he could dominate the Jewish trivial pursuit competitions that came on the Game Show Network. It was not. He wasn't asking for his own desire. He prefaces all this by saying, God, I want to lead your people well. I want to do this well, but I don't think I can do it. He says, I'm just like a kid trying to lead a bunch of people. I don't think I can do it. He realizes that in order for him to lead the people of God, he's going to need divine intervention. He's going to realize that it's not going to be my wisdom. It's not going to be my talent. It's not going to be my people that are going to do it. He says, God, I need need wisdom from above. And it says in response to that, the Lord, verse 10, was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. See, when Solomon is asking for wisdom, he's not just asking for the ability to come up with a pithy statement that makes people, just leaves them in awe and wonder. Just, dang, Solomon, that was a, that was a good one. That was a good one. Literally, when he asked for wisdom in, this, in a discerning heart, literally what it's saying is, give me a listening ear to you. When Solomon says, The one thing I want is I want to be able to hear you because herein lies the secret to wisdom. And wisdom is not being able to come up with all the classifications of biological plants and animals and all that stuff. So that's not what wisdom is. I Maybe mean, that's part of it. Not being able to tell the, the type of rock that you see out in the. Uh, these are <laughs> that's not what wisdom is. The wisdom is. Is the ability to hear and to listen to what God is saying. That's what wisdom is. In another place, this same Solomon write that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me ask you a question. When you're seeking wisdom from people, right, whose wisdom are you seeking? To whom do you go for advice? Tell you what, a lot of times the damage control that I do as I talk with people, is because people have consulted the wrong kind of wisdom. Yes, you're trying to decide if this is the right job for me to take or not. Yes, 15 people, 13 of them say, yeah, you should do it. Two of them say, no, you shouldn't do it. Who do you follow? Who do you follow? Follow the 13 or do you follow the two? I hope it's not an easy question. I hope you would say it depends on who the two are and who the 13 are. You've got to ask yourself, are they operating in the wisdom of the world or are they operating in the wisdom that comes from hearing and listening to God? Because a lot of times the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. You know this, don't you? A lot of times the wisdom of God is not the same thing as the wisdom of the world. You have to ask yourself, as I get advice from people, from which reservoir of wisdom are they drawing from? I wouldn't trust the advice of a person who's not in the Word of God and who's not praying. I wouldn't trust them. Except to say whatever they say. I'm going to probably do the opposite. But who are you seeking counsel from? And really ask yourself. And if you're, a, if, if, if you're someone who people are always asking you for advice from, if you're a, a Bible study teacher, you're a house church leader, you've got to be withdrawing. You've got to ask God for this kind of wisdom. You've got to be withdrawing from the wisdom that comes from God. You've got to be hearing from God lest you lead people according to the wisdom of the world. God says, what do you want, Solomon? What do you want? And the one thing Solomon says is I want a wise and discerning. I, should, I want to hear you. I want to hear from you, God. And it pleased God so much that God says in, in verse 10, God, in verse 11, you, you have not asked for wealth or for the death of all these people or for a long life. You've asked For discernment and ministering justice, verse 12 says, I'll do what you've asked, but I'll go above and beyond. Verse 13, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. You know, when God comes to us and he lays before us an open book like that, and we pray to God, when we honor God, this is 1 Samuel 2.30, it says, God will honor those who honor him. Jesus would say, in Matthew 6.33, okay, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto us as well. God was pleased with what Solomon asked for because in seeking wisdom above all else, to minister to the people of God, he was seeking God above all else. This is the first thing. Solomon started out really well. The second thing that we see, the second thing that we see here is that this is the middle of his life. He applied that wisdom to others, but he didn't apply that wisdom to himself. This is a bad thing. Starting in, uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 16, immediately we see the fruit of that prayer. You got this two people, um, two women, they're two prostitutes. Prostitutes in those days were um, just as they are today. Typically, it meant that they didn't have a husband. So they had no source of income. They had no livelihood. They were pitied amongst people, if not I mean, the People didn't like them, but at the very least, they were, they were treated with pity. So he got these two prostitutes. Both of them had babies born at around the same time. And during the middle of the night, one of them rolled over and crushed her kid, and the kid died. And so here these two ladies come, and they come, two ladies, one baby, and they say, Solomon, oh, king, one of our children is dead, and one of the ladies accused the other one of killing her own child and then stealing the baby and saying that this was her own and replacing babies so that the true mother of the living kid, was being accused of having killed the other baby. You got two women, one dead child, one living child, and both women are saying, that child is mine. And they're saying to Solomon, what do we do? Whose kid, what do we do? In that situation, wisdom is not throwing out some kind of a nice statement like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Solomon doesn't sit there and say, all right, guys, uh, hey, get the royal court out and and get your iPhones out. Get ready to tweet what I'm about to say. Yeah, it's it's not like that. Wisdom that comes from heaven is the ability to live in discernment of God's will and his purpose and to lead that and to bring that forth into action. So what does he say? If you look starting in, um, let's see, verse 24. Okay, so the situation is there. Two women, one dead boy, one dead child. Verse 24, then the king Solomon said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other stupid woman said, neither I nor you shall have him. Go ahead, chop him. And verse 27, the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Solomon knew, right, if I present this situation, if I say I'm gonna cut this baby in half, maternal instinct, maternal emotion is gonna kick in and it's gonna say, Well, I if I'd rather have a baby given away to somebody else than to have that baby dead. And so that's, that's a simple thing. But the wisdom is not seen simply in how Solomon fixes this situation. But the wisdom is seen in how Solomon does or does not deal with the mother who killed her own child. See, part of, part of, administering a kingdom and leading a kingdom is not only bringing down justice, but it's extending mercy as well. All of the best kings combine both justice with mercy. And he knew this woman, the pain of having lost her child, the pain of having killed her child, the pain of having lied and being caught in a lie, was grievous enough, was enough of a punishment. The fact that she has resigned her life to living with that grief and living as a prostitute was enough of a judgment for her. And so Solomon says, that's all that you need. He gives the woman back her child, and he gives this woman back whatever remnants of her life she has left. And in the midst of that justice coupled with mercy, People see the wisdom of God given to Solomon and he's held in high esteem. And they're like, dang, he's the man, Solomon. And his stock begins to rise throughout your, even even greater than David. Remember, David took a defenseless woman and he slept with her. Solomon took a defenseless woman and he had mercy on her. It says what David did, <clears throat> displeased the Lord, says what Solomon did, pleased the Lord. You see, Solomon's being set up in contrast to the great King David. <clears throat> what Solomon is about to do far exceeds even the greatest king, the great King David. This is what he set up for. In fact, David set out to build a temple for God. But God says, you're not going to be the one to do it. Solomon, your son, is going to be the one to do it. And it, it, it sets Solomon up to be the continuation of the glorious reign of David, to take his reign the next step further. This is, this is Solomon's life. It's not only in all of Israel, but in chapter 4, verse 34, it says, Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And starting from chapter 4, verse 34, all the way up through chapter 10, it talks about the people who came to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. The queen of Sheba came. She's like, I heard about all of your greatness, but now that I've seen, I realize that you're far more wise and far greater than anyone had ever said. The king of Tyre comes. All these places, people are coming from all around. Because Solomon was applying this wisdom, the God-given wisdom, he was applying it to all of these different people. Then you come to the end of chapter 10, you get to the beginning of chapter 11 and all this starts unraveling. We're going to get to chapter 11 in the next thought. But the problem with Solomon, the problem with Solomon was that he was applying all of this wisdom to other people, but he didn't apply it to himself. It's a dangerous thing that happens. The dentist who doesn't floss or brush his or her own teeth the doctor who only eats fried food, doesn't eat vegetables, and smokes three packs of cigarettes a day. The policeman who doesn't wear his own seatbelt, doesn't wear her own seatbelt, policewoman, and goes speeding throughout the highways and the byways of the city. And there's something about people like that, about the parent who tells their child what to do, but they fail to live that for themselves, the person who says, I know, that, I know that I've told all of my students not to do these things and that thing and have this kind of stuff and that kind of stuff. I know that they shouldn't compromise in these areas, but they do it themselves, and they justify it. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, constantly talked about the lure of lady folly and about the lure and the temptation of adultery. And yet that same Solomon would go off and he would have hundreds of wives and be led astray by them. He said, well, the reason I'm doing this is because this is what kings do. We make treaties with other kings and we marry their daughters as a way of solidifying that treaty. This is what it says in chapter 3, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. And he told everyone else, don't do that kind of stuff. But he did it himself, and he justified it by saying, this is what political, military, this is what the kings of the nations do. And we need to be careful. If we're giving wisdom, advice to all kinds of people, telling them, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, and we go off doing it ourselves, and we begin to justify it in our own lives. One of my favorite shows growing up was when I was a kid. My brother and I we would always, always watch on Saturday mornings just to watch the Three Stooges. They were these guys. was before uh, color was invented, so it was all in black and white. Guy named uh, Larry, guy named Mo, guy named Curly. We loved it. We would laugh all the time. They're just these guys, and, and I think guys think his it's, it's humor is really funny, but I don't think girls really do because we wa- we showed our mom, and she's like, "I don't find anything humorous about this," but. These guys would do all of these silly tricks and they would prank each other and they would hit each other on top of their head with hammers and, and there would always be, there was this guy Mo, he was the, the ringleader. Uh, we loved Mo so much that for 15 years of our lives we had Mo's haircut, but Mo was the leader of this group and he was always like beating people up and being extremely violent with them. There would be this either Curlier or Larry or Shemp or one of these other uh, guys and, and they would say something, something really funny to Mo that would offend Mo. It was usually something wise or something funny. And Mo would look at them and he would get upset and he would say, oh, wise guy, eh? And then he would hit them on top of the head. And I learned by watching the Three Stooges that a wise guy is someone who says the right things, but their actions show themselves to be a fool. It's interesting how similar a wise man in semantics is to a wise guy, but how different they are. A wise man is held in high regard, but a wise guy is seen with contempt and scorn. Solomon seemed like a wise man, but his actions showed that really he was a wise guy, said all of the right things, taught all of the right things, but his life was anything but a life of wisdom. And he ended up, well, let's see what happens, the last thing that we see, okay, the last thing that we see, despite a great beginning, even though he started out great, right, small compromises led him to derail his life. Right? Small compromises end up derailing his life. It was small compromises that ended up tripping him up and throwing him off the path. We see at the beginning of chapter 11, abruptly, abruptly, all of the praise of Solomon comes to a screeching halt. Verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, basically anything that moved besides termites, this cat had a thing for. And so he married all of these different women. Started out with just one. Just one. Verse 2, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Right? He held fast to them. He's clinging to them. Even though God told him, Don't marry these women, he told other people, Don't marry these women. But these were the very women that he not only married, but he held fast. To them, you can't marry people outside of the line of God and not have your heart follow them. Verse three. He had seven hundred wives. That's crazy. <laughs> of royal birth, and three hundred concubines. And in the biggest no-duh statement of the Bible, and his wives led him astray. Seven hundred and 300 numbers of completion. It's not saying that he stopped literally at the number 700. Okay, no, 701, you're beautiful, but I don't want you. It's not, it's not saying that. Oh, 300, 301, no, you, you didn't make the cut. I want 1,000 perfect. It's not saying that. It's saying this is a number of completion. It's saying beyond measure he had these kinds of women. If he had 700, part of the issue, man, you got 700 wives, you got 700 mothers-in-law. This is death to Solomon right here. Not very smart. Verse 4 As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. It started out just one Egyptian woman. He probably didn't think that one day I'm going to have 700 of them in my harem, but from one to two, to three, to a hundred, up to seven hundred. It doesn't matter how well you start. God's always looking for how are you going to end. Present faithfulness is no indicator of future faithfulness. Verse seven, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chamash, the detestable god of Moab, for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who built, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. You'll read as you read through the Book of Kings, Chronicles, Samuel. You'll read constantly this phrase: "the high places." What are the high places? You read through the Chronicles and the Kings. It says the king did not remove the high places. What were they? In ancient Near Eastern religions, people would worship on tops of mountains, right, high places. And before the temple was built, the Israelites throughout the promised land would worship at different high places. But once the temple was built, Jerusalem was where they would go to worship. But it says Solomon did not destroy the high places. He kept them there. And when he collected, accumulated all of these different wives. He used these high places for them to go and worship. And he kept them there, a little bit of compromise in his life. And then it says in verse 7, a high place for Chamash, a high place for Malik. These were, it says, detestable gods, but these guys were famous. In the height of the worship of these gods, people would take their children and they would throw them into the fire as child sacrifices. And Solomon's wives led him to create these in the shadow of the temple. With his back to the temple, he erected these high places of worship for these false gods. And he kept these high places there because his wives had led him astray. Did you know, and I've mentioned this before, but the more I read, the more I learn, the more I study God's word, the more I am accumulating this information. I've always said that in the Old Testament, there are a couple reasons why Old Testament people fell into sin and fell away from God. As I've been reading and I've been studying these passages during my devotional time, I've seen four things that constantly lead the people of God away. Four things, four small areas of compromise that constantly lead to the train being derailed. The first thing is people of the opposite gender. It was, a, it was the case with David. It was the case with Solomon. It was the case with Samson. It was the case with different judges. Small compromises in the air of your relationship with the opposite gender, whether you're married or not, whether you're da- whether you say you're dating or not. Doesn't matter the terminology. It's your heart. Okay, what you do, what you think, what you meditate on, your relationship, not even your relationship with real people, but fake people on the internet, whatever it is that small area of compromise quickly derails the morality train in happens throughout the Bible. Guard your heart in these areas. That's the first one. The second one is, again, when you ignore the advice of your spiritual elders. When they tell you something, when they ask you something, when they advise you in some way, your house church leaders, uh, your spiritually-minded friends, your Bible study teachers. And when you push against the wisdom of God and the advice of godly people, you push against the joy and the life and the health and the preservation and the protection that God offers. The third thing, third thing is when you're led astray by false gods. and Other gods, other loves, other desires, other longings. And then the fourth thing is when there's secret stuff in your life that you don't let other people into. Right, these four areas, my friends, we need to, I said this last week, we gotta, these are the areas we need to guard against. We need to check because these are the areas where small compromise can quickly ruin the ship. It's happened so many times and we think, we think well, I can handle it. And Romans, 1st Corinthians, they both say these things happened to people in the past that they might serve as warnings to you and that through their failure you might find hope. And so be careful. Small sin, small compromise. It's just a little bit of this in my life. It's all right, just a little bit of this. I'm okay, I can manage it. And by the time, you, before you know it, one Egyptian woman becomes 700 women and your life is out of control. You know, in I think it was 1983, uh, I think it was September 1st, 1983, Korean Airlines flying out of Anchorage, Alaska, going to Korea straight shot. And it was leaving. They did it. The pilots didn't know, but there was a navigational error, so that the coordinates that were plugged in were one and a half degree off, right one and a half degree. Unnoticeable. They took off. they didn't know about 100 miles they didn't know. But once they got over the Pacific Ocean, once they got over, they flew into Russian-Soviet airspace, 1983. Some of you guys remember this. Russian jets were deployed, and they shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007. 269 people, all of them on board, were killed. why? They left Anchorage, they didn't say, let's get killed. Let's get shot down over Russia. Let's go over Russia. That wasn't their intent. It was just a tiny, minuscule, one and a half degrees, off course, small compromise, small secret, small sin. I can handle it. I can deal with it. But before long, it took down everyone there and it led to their destruction. What happened with Solomon? What happened with Solomon? It doesn't matter how you start, my friends. What matters is how you end. And the reality is that tomorrow could be the end. We need to live each day as if it were our last. Live each day as if it were your last. If Jesus were to catch you in what you were doing this week, if Jesus were to come back when you were doing what you were doing this week, would Jesus be able to say, bro, I'm pleased with you. I'm happy with you. With you is my my wholehearted delight. I hope we can say that. And and if we can't, then we need to fight for that. We need to repent of our sin. We need to turn to the Lord God. Because tomorrow could be, today could be the end. We don't know. We can't live as if we've got all day long. All of our lives to live. We, We can't live with regrets in our lives. And we can't. And quickly, at the end of chapter 11, by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, Solomon's dead. Saying this is how quick the demise of his kingdom was. Because a slow compromise that creeped into his life. And it caught him. And it got him. And it snared him. And after that, it was all over. Solomon didn't start out that way. In fact, everything was great in his life. There was peace on every side. There was peace internally. No stress. He was living in the midst of the promised land. Everything was going well. He sat back on the beaches of Israel with a pina colada in his hand. He's like, it doesn't get any better than this. Maybe that's some of our attitude. Even as we live in sin and in compromise, it doesn't get any better than this. I've got all of my stuff, all my ducks are in order, and even though God is not, may not be pleased with one or two aspects of my life, it's all good because nobody knows. And maybe it doesn't get any better than this. That's what the beer commercials tell you. But I tell you what, it does get worse than that. It's not always going to be, life is not always going to be a beach. And Solomon would quickly find out at the end of this chapter because of all this stuff there's rebellion the foreign nations attacked him Solomon would be the last king of Israel before the kingdom was divided and torn into two with his son and with the next king there would now be two kingdoms amongst the people of God disunity Ten tribes in the north Israel, two tribes in the south Judah. Within 400, within 300 years, the northern kingdom, Israel, would be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Within 450 years, the Babylonians would come. They would destroy Judah. They would destroy the temple. They'd be taken off into exile. may not get better than your life now, but it will certainly get worse. And the people of Israel were sent into a frenzy the king who they thought was going to be better than David ended up ruining and leading them astray. Thank God that it's all about Jesus and not about Solomon because many years later in Matthew chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 12, there would be another wise and humble king who not only spoke the words of wisdom, but he lived it out, giving life to all people around. And as he talked about the wisdom of Solomon, the splendor and the glory and the queen of Sheba coming and visiting, verse 42, chapter 12, says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Solomon is here because the reality that the Bible says is that it does get better than this. It does get better than this. There's a promised land. There is a promised land far greater than that which the people of God knew in that time. Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, that I'm coming I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one goes to that promised land except through me. You put your trust in him. You put your trust in him. Not coming to church, not being here, not going to house church, not doing the right things, not showing up, being baptized. none None of that matters. But have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your life and as the master of your days? Something far greater than this life is coming. There's a peace that they thought that they knew, peace from the Philistines, peace from their enemies. Jesus says there's a peace that the world cannot know, the peace that the world cannot give. There's a peace that would just utterly blow your mind away if you could experience it. And he says, it's my peace. It's my peace. Do you know the peace of Christ in your life? Do you know the peace of Christ in your life? Like that that sense of peace that even though all hell is breaking loose in your life, still there's peace because peace is not the absence of anxiety, the absence of trial, the absence of difficulty. It is the presence of Christ at the center of the boat that is your heart. In the midst of the storm, There's a calm that comes from Jesus. Do you know that peace? Because one greater than Solomon has come, and he wants to give that to you. And not just theoretically, not just like a, but practically, personally, deeply, internally, eternally, for all time. Let's pray together. One greater than Solomon is here because he promised that he would be here when two or three gather in his name. When Jesus is in the center of our lives, in the midst of the storm, we can still be at peace. When Jesus is at the center, life doesn't become so complicated and hectic, but when Jesus is off on the fringes, then chaos abounds in our lives. It's not about what we sing, what we say, what we confess. It's about how we're living. Is, in, right now, in the way that you and I are living, the way that you're living, is Jesus Christ the center of your life? Because if he is, then everything that he promised will be manifest in your life. He's not. Then, yeah, those things will still be there in measure. But not to the degree that it can be the fullness of life that He's promised to us. Where are the areas of compromise in your life? The opposite gender? Is there secrets? Are you ignoring the counsel of spiritual leaders? Are you following after other gods? Really doesn't matter how we start, my friends. Good start is no predictor of a great finish. Jesus calls us to be faithful to the end. And if we are his, then he will keep us faithful. But it's day by day we need to choose. Day by day we need to choose. We need to fight for that. We need to decide for Christ. I'm going to invite us to take a minute to respond to God's word in confession. Asking the Lord to put his finger on these areas of our lives. And as we do that, I'm going to invite In a moment, anyone in here who feels like, you know what? Maybe I've prayed this prayer, but I'm not living in the Lordship of Christ. I've been going to church, but I've never really put my trust in Christ, my wholehearted trust in Christ. I'm still the king of my own life. In a moment, I'm going to give an invitation, if there's anyone that wants to pray, to receive Christ into their lives as Savior and Lord make that confession and that prayer together. But for now, let's take a minute just to respond in our own ways, in our own words to the Lord God, and ask that He would curtail the compromise in our lives so that we could be holy and we could be surrendered fully to Him. Let's pray together for a moment. I'll give an invitation. As we pray with our eyes closed in a posture of worship and reflection. If you're here and it doesn't matter who you've come with, it doesn't matter how long you've been coming here. Again, it doesn't matter what's happened in the past. What matters is where you are now and what you choose now. You feel like, hey, in my life, what you're saying up there, that's true. That's me. That's my life. I need Jesus in my life. I need him in my life. In compromise. I've been living for other things, but I need him in my life. The Bible says that we are all sinners. If some of us cover it up. Some of us admit to it. The ones who admit, if we can acknowledge that we're sinners and that we believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for us in love, that he would take our punishment so that we could have his reward and we could have a new life that begins the moment you trust him and continues on into eternity. That's you if that's you know you I need that. however young, however old you are, if that's you, just invite you to raise your hand quietly where you are and um, just I'll, I'll see you and recognize you and, and, and pray for you. That's you. I just I need that in my life. Thank you. Okay thanks. A couple of us here just confessed and made this decision. Want to pray, put their lives in Christ. Okay, thank you. I'm back to see you. You put your hand out. See you. There's uh, three of us in here, and I'm going to invite us to pray together now. You just pray this in your heart. You don't have to pray it out loud. Just pray this in your heart, Lord Jesus. I've lived my life according to my own way. I've hurt myself, and I've hurt others, and I've hurt you. I've sinned against you, and that sin deserves punishment. But thank you that you took my place. Jesus said you died on the cross for me. I believe that my punishment has been taken by you and that you have given to me all of your favor. When the Father looks at me, he sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. No longer do I have to be afraid, no longer do I have to be ashamed. So, would you come into my life now to be my Savior, to be my Master? change me from the inside out and help me to be the person you want me to be. Help me to love you because you have loved me first. In Jesus' name. As we... um.